0: Welcome to the Drabblecast, episode 101. The Drabblecast is a weekly flash fiction podcast magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. Sometimes the weirdest stories we get here on the Drabblecast come from Mother Nature herself. When reality is so badass that it beats the crap out of fiction, and then goes on to take its lunch money and give it a swirly, we like to tell you about it in a little segment called Drabble News. Nationalgeographic.com I'm just going to tell it to you straight, folks. No beating around the bush. No gilding the lily. No making mountains out of molehills or, uh, I don't know, teaching old dogs new tricks. There's a type of jellyfish that can reverse age, meaning that, yes, It can live forever. Scientists are calling it the Mickey Rooney of Phylum Cnidaria. I'm joshing you. That's just what I've been calling them. But not to their faces. Because you see, I'm still trying to decide if I should be studying these things. Or, I don't know, sacrificing stuff to them. Things are not supposed to be immortal. It freaks me out. The only things that are immortal are God and the Highlander, and the Highlander is clearly a vertebrate. So, I've already dusted off my inflatable Eddie Bauer ritual altar. All I need is somebody's firstborn something, and who knows, maybe they'll spare me when the day of reckoning comes. So, how do these puppies achieve immortality anyways? Is it as simple as flying to Neverland or making out with some hot vampire jellyfish? I'm afraid not. Turritopsis, the so-called immortal jellyfish, which gets about as wide as a human pinky nail when fully grown, reproduces the old-fashioned way, by the meeting of free-floating sperm and eggs, after an overpriced tapas restaurant and a crappy movie with Kate Hudson in it. And most of the time, they die the old-fashioned way, too. But when starvation, physical damage, or other crises arise, turritopsis, instead of sure death, transforms all of its existing cells into a younger state, says study author Maria Miglietta, a researcher at Pennsylvania State University. The jellyfish's cells are often completely transformed in the process. Muscle cells can become nerve cells, or even sperm or eggs. The jellyfish turns itself into a blob-like cyst, which then develops into a colony of polyps, which is essentially the first stage in jellyfish life. I love how even jellyfish have their own kind of awkward, clumsy puberty years to get through. Too scared to run. so scared. Run. Christopher, turn that music off and get down here for dinner. Your zooplankton is getting cold. Mom, I'm on the phone! Gah! Young man, get your hydrostatic skeleton down here right this instant and absorb these nutrients into your gastrovascular cavity. I am not going to ask you again.
1: Mom?
0: I freaking hate her. She acts like I'm still a polyp or something. So lame. I can't wait to get out of here. Why can't we, like, transform our existing cells into an older state for once? Um, Through asexual reproduction, the resulting polyp colony can spawn hundreds of genetically identical jellyfish, near-perfect copies of the original adult. This unique approach to hardship may be the reason that Turritopsis swarms are rapidly spreading throughout the world's oceans, Miglietta added. Another crazy thing about the immortal fish: scientists looking at specimens from around the globe have found that all their genes are identical. There's no way genetically identical jellyfish swarms could have ended up in so many far flung places simply by riding ocean currents, says Miglietta. She suspects the jellyfish are hitching rides inside long distance cargo ships. The creatures are likely traveling in the ship's ballast water, water sucked into and pumped out of ships to provide stability. Or they're attaching to hulls. Or raining down from space in cosmic dust. Or traveling through pan-dimensional portals in the deep sea vents. F*** it, she says. I don't freaking know. Well, this week's drabble is called A Gentleman Caller by Rodney Elliott. Rodney currently lives in South Georgia with his wife and two daughters. He says that they're living proof that a meaningful and lasting relationship can develop from a home-invasion-kidnapping scenario. Hmm... Remember, drabbles are stories exactly 100 words. Send yours into drabblecast at yahoo.com. Laura looked out the front window expectantly. Today would be the perfect day. She and Jim had met exactly one year ago. This would be the day he proposed. She was sure of it. She heard footsteps coming up the sidewalk and hurried to greet him at the door. Jim! What a pleasant surprise! Who are you? What the hell are you doing in my house? Darling, that's no way to… Hey, you're that crazy lady from the… Laura shot Jim with a tranquilizer gun and pulled him inside. Of course I'll marry you, Jim. I thought you'd never ask. Our feature story this week is called Bemused by Michael R. Fossberg. Michael is currently attending the University of South Florida. When he isn't reading, writing, and studying until his eyes bleed, he's probably sleeping. His work has appeared in The Nautilus Engine, The Absent Willow Review, Expressions Newsletter, and Everyday Weirdness. His neglected blog can be found at m-roderick.livejournal.com, which you'll find linked in our show notes. So, without further ado, Bemused by Michael R. Fosberg. My muse is the life of every party. He does keg stands and plays beer pong like he was born to the game. He eats the entire cheese platter, and vomits into a house plant. And when I sling his arm around my shoulder to drag him to the car, he tells me that he'll never leave me. Then he plants a sloppy, puke-smelling kiss on my cheek, and passes out. I'm sick of being inspired. Things were different in college. I was broke half the time, and barely scraping by the other, all the while buried beneath overdue papers on Proust and Hemingway and Faulkner. I worked 40-hour weeks at a crumbly pizza parlor down the road, writing at the end of the night, with oven burns on my arms and hands. But the writing was mine. I sure as hell wasn't getting paid for it, but the stories were written truthfully and even though the editors of various magazines returned my SASE with form rejections and the occasional written response, those were always nice, I was happy. But then I found my muse. Or rather, he found me. It was on a Thursday evening. I was in front of the television watching a Law & Order rerun when the doorbell rang. I sighed pried myself loose from the couch, and went to answer it. The short, chubby man waiting on the other end was, he told me, my muse. He walked into the apartment and flopped down on my couch, picked up the beer I'd been drinking, drained it in three gulps, and belched resoundingly. Uh, Shouldn't a muse be a, um, woman? I asked, scratching my head. I mean, muses were beautiful. You're... The muse shrugged. You know, actually, it doesn't take too much to get certified these days. Wow, with so many writers saturating the market. Supplies gotta keep up with demand. They call it, uh, economics. Stupid. Wary, I walked over to my laptop and booted it up, opened the word processor, and began to write. I didn't stop until six the following morning. I don't even remember what it was I wrote about. I just let my fingers walk across the keys, immersing myself. Creative fire burned holes in my body, struggling to find an escape. I transcribed the fire, saved it, and sent it out to the latest magazine to reject me. So, you're really a muse? I asked him, yawning. The time had flown by, and I had a class to get to. He was wearing a pair of my boxers, munching contentedly on potato chips. Ah, yeah, well, I'm sure as hell not here for the pleasure of your company, Shakespeare. He brushed crumbs off his paunch of a stomach, onto my floor. I realized my muse was an asshole. The months flew by and the rejection letters disappeared. My stories began to be published. Several made the best of anthologies, and one well-known critic confessed my story, the premier Snowball, made him weep into his coffee. Such was its heartbreaking genius. I had broken the market. Suddenly I had a literary agent. School was forgotten. That shitty pizza parlor was forgotten. Book deals were falling into my lap, and soon I was climbing the New York Times bestseller list, settling at number two. Some thick tome of an epic fantasy beat me, but not by much. I was in the shortlist at all the hottest clubs, fanciest restaurants, and swankiest parties. And by my side through it all was my muse. Most of the time, I ignore him, and usually he goes away after a while, but lately he's been more of an ass than usual, strutting around in Italian silk, a sleek black cane twirling in his pudgy hands. He walks in now, sporting such an outfit, looking like a miniature Gucci model. We, uh, need to talk, he says, twirling his cane. I grunt. I'd rather shove my hand into a wood chipper. You know, I've been thinking about our arrangement. I swivel in my chair to face him. We, uh, don't have one. Yeah, that's just the thing, bucko. What do you say we split your earnings down the middle? Say, 50-50? No. 60-40? No, I earned that money. You're just freeloading. Squatting. The muse stops spinning his cane and for a moment looks hurt. How can you say that? You wouldn't have any of this if it wasn't for me. And it's time you pay up. He looks me square in the eye. Or else. I would have laughed had I not known what the little bastard was capable of. Or else what? I go to the bloggers about where you get your inspiration. This takes me aback. How? You have nothing, nothing to prove that. Oh, but I do. And he produces from thin air a stack of rejected manuscripts thicker than my arm. I tell him I'll think about it. And I do. It comes down to two things. One, that he's right. Without him, my writing is destined for rejection. It'll never be great, merely competent. And two, if he sells me out to the bloggers, my reputation will be solid. I'd be called a hack from sea to shining sea. My only option, it seems, is to capitulate to his demands. but some deeper part of me is still that idealistic young writer laboring away at midnight with oven burns on his hands. He knows that isn't an option. So we go for a ride. I promise him we'll talk on the way. The muse eats several bags of chips and slurps a big gulp as we drive, and soon we pull into a deserted rest stop surrounded by woods, the highways empty for miles. So, he asks, spraying my face with potato chip pulp, you come to your senses yet, Shakespeare? Yeah, I say, and pull out the forty-five. His eyes go wide, and before he can react, I put the gun to his forehead and squeeze the trigger. When I drop out of the public life, it makes the tabloids for a week. And then another celebrity couple fills the gossipy void. Soon, I'm forgotten. I write, and the rejection letters keep coming. Addressed to a pseudonym now. I smile at each one stick them in a file, and move on to my next project. At least there aren't any oven burns on my hands this time. Listen to Bob Marley He's got it together The sound of someone strong and clever
1: I don't know if things are ever gonna change Things are starting to get mighty, mighty strange
0: Well, that was our story. Hope you were amused. Let's do some feedback for a little story we ran a couple weeks ago called Lewek and Sarah by Samantha Henderson. This was the story about... Well, the jury's still out on exactly what the story was about, but regardless, it did have ghost children and a civilization of underground insect-like creatures. While pretty much everyone agreed that the story was beautifully written and engaging, there were mixed sentiments about whether it was successful or not. Strawman said, I feel like I've just been on a visit to an exhibition of modern art. I have an impression but not much confidence that my impression is what the author intended or what other people's impressions are going to be. It's tempting to say nothing and wait to see what everyone else says, just like an exhibition of modern art. Mr. Tweedy said, That was a lot like the other Henderson story, Starry Night, only more so. Lots of interesting texture and ambiance, but what the heck was going on? An earthquake lets the cave dwellers out into our world where they're haunted by ghost holographic avatars of dead humans? Hospital nurseries have become museum exhibits for some reason? Singing crystals have trouble harmonizing in sunlight? And people have a love-hate relationship with a buoyant dancing fat man? Mr. Tweedy then exploded. Tree Man stepped up and offered the best 4 member first post ever, breaking it down for us. Warning,
1: if you haven't heard this story yet, there are spoilers up yonder. Tree Man said... Uh, The story was an alternate history sci-fi set in the early 1900s, and there are a lot of clues to this. The fatty Arbuckle Mabel Norman silent film, The Tower of Jewels, and Palace of Fine Arts that reference the Panama Pacific World Fair in California. The Lemurians appeared from the Earth, probably from the big 1906 earthquake that destroyed San Francisco. And while some humans tried to accept them, yes, they were secretly resented as the cause of the earthquake. Lueck is haunted by the ghost of a child that he's presumably never met, probably killed in the earthquake. The Child Hatchery is a little unclear to me, and in my opinion didn't add to the story. Either there's a parallel problem with babies and mothers dying, or it's just a scene, like the movie theater, to show us how Lueck feels about humans, and what we are when it comes to things like earthquakes and bed fever. Fragile. Whew.
0: Well, I've got to admit, people, old Norm might have screwed this one up a bit. The actual title of the story is called Lewek and Sarah at the Panama Pacific International Exposition, 1915. I totally missed the historical context references, so asked Samantha if we could just shorten the title to Lewek and Sarah, because I just thought it rang better. She was cool with it, but I apologize that the story was ambiguous without the full title. Anyways, if you want to try the story again, read it on Samantha's blog at samhenderson.livejournal.com. Well, that's all for this week. The Drabblecast uses a Creative Commons attribution non commercial no derivatives license, which means you can't change it, you can't sell it, you can share it all you like. If you like our show, consider throwing a donation our way via the appropriate links off our website at You can either make a one-time donation or subscribe for a measly five bucks a month. That's like a buck 25 per episode. What a deal. Or you can help us by blogging about us, telling a friend, or writing a review on iTunes or wherever you get our show. We'll see you next week. Until then, our staff is made up of co-editors, Kendall Marchman, Luke Coddington, and yours truly, Norm Sherman, reminding you that Mickey Rooney's polyps transform. The evening saunters to closing. The waitress turns chairs upside down. Piano player picks up his tip jar and drink. And the bartender shouts last round.